All right, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Gaucho Amigos. I'm Alex. Today, my guest is Zach Phillips. He's the co-leader and songwriter of the band Fival is Gloak, uh, a band I had never heard of until pretty recently. Uh, I guess they're ostensibly an indie rock band, but there's a strong jazz influence in their sound, so it almost comes across as uh, indie jazz fusion, uh, a somewhat unusual mix. Um, a lot of their songs are in French. The other songwriter uh, and lead singer, her name is Ma Clement, uh, and I believe she's from Belgium. Uh, quite a few of the band members uh, are European. Uh, and apparently they opened for Stereolab on tour last fall, uh, but I just discovered them uh, earlier this year. Uh, and they're incredible. You know, I've been digging into their latest album, which is called Flaming Swords, uh, and also this video on YouTube where they're playing at Audio Tree Studios and they blow through like nine songs in 20 minutes. Uh, the songs are great. Uh, the musicianship uh, is impeccable. Uh, and Ma's vocals are pretty stunning. So, yeah. I really love this band. Uh, anyway, I uh, reached out to Zach on Twitter, mostly to just tell him how much I've been enjoying his work. And uh, we started chatting. And I discovered that he's more of a Walter Becker solo fan than a Steely Dan fan. Uh, not something you hear too often. Um, but we ended up doing a Gaucho Amigos chat in person. Uh, and it was great. Zach is very thoughtful about music and about the creative process and about Becker and Fagan. So thanks to Zach for taking the time to come and meet me in person uh, to do this episode. Uh, and a very special shout out to my friend uh, and former guest of this show, Winston Cook Wilson. Uh, he produced the episode and uh, sat in on our conversation and you'll uh, hear him occasionally chime in. Without further ado, this is me and Zach Phillips of the band Fival is Gloke. Enjoy. There's something fusional about their relationship, and that's part of what I think is psychologically complex about mm. the writing uh, that came out. And I like that they're writers first and foremost. Um, uh, even like you know the lore is that they like there's a bunch of records that like aren't credited to them that they wrote you know and they're like barred like immediately post barred days i don't know if there's like a dan verse that has like figured out what those records are but i feel like i hear them sometimes i'm like they probably wrote that but you know, i read an interview today preparing for this <laughs> podcast where walter there it it was like the the lead from the article is like you know it's a it's a 90s interview and the lead is they're talking about like it being subver subversive what they're trying to do like putting jazz harmony and and weird ass cryptic lyrics and pop songs or whatever yeah. that's how they put it but the part of the interview that just that interested me was just Walter Becker just being like yeah you know um we just wanted to make harmonically complex music we wanted harmonically interesting music and we never really thought about genre or what it was for and we don't really care and i was like yeah that, that's really relatable because <laughs> uh, that's what you do pretty much right yeah just trying to find i used to when i was like 20 
21 or something that I was trying to like define as one does when one's 21, like what it's, <laughs> what it's all for, what it's all about or yep. whatever. And the term I came up with was uh, psychological modernism, right? Like okay. the idea of modernism, which is like art movements uh, that I, I take that, like the resonance there is that you're like modernists are trying to, um, I'm looking at the Borges book right there. <laughs> like modernists are, tr- are searching for novel, materialist novelty, right? Um, counterposed to maybe like conceptual novelty and things like that. It's like, what can we do with these materials that would be novel and would be on the cutting edge of what we think is possible, you know? And, and my idea was like, well, you know, what, what I care about is trying to be on the cutting edge of what, what psychological effects and like how it feels and what, what, like, what would it feel like to say that in a song or what would it feel like if the, if, if that's dissonant in a way that I just don't understand, um, things like, you know, things like that. And I really kind of like buried that and became embarrassed about it. But recently I've been more like, <laughs> Oh yeah, that, that's basically, that's all right. Yeah. Like surprising yourself as much as the listener. Yeah. Surprise. It's a cult of surprise. I mean, that's what, that's what art is to me. It's yeah. like, it's a heuristic cult of surprise. Like we're, you know, striving to be, shocked um, by something new. One of my lullabies was the vault by mistakes arrived It's not just about attention to sound or attention to the performance. It's like you're actually doing representational work. You're like making decisions that that transcend how they sound it's like basically what 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 do these decisions mean is is a question that you might ask or you might not ask but either way it's like that's happening and putting yourself at somebody else's mercy for a live session um which you're always doing if you're not engineering it yourself it's it's kind of scary for me and audio tree like we don't have any input into the mixing or anything like that so you just showed up there that day and it was all kind of set up for you? Yeah, and they did a great job. I mean, they're they're they do it every day, you know, they're they're pros. But that's really really like I had to be kind of talked into it. Um because I I was like, what do you mean? I'm not going to have control of the representation. <laughs> what aspects of representation are you like specifically referring to? It could be anything. Like it just really like with Flaming Swords, you know, that that was all recorded live in one day. Um, but, but there's a great deal of, uh, representational fuckery to, to make things feel because people have it in their heads that you just, um, and it makes sense. Like, I don't, I don't know how certain things work. I don't know, you know, there are a million processes that I'm not familiar with, you know, so, um, I'm not bemoaning like ignorance about the, the ins and outs of making recordings for, you know, for people who haven't done it a lot, but, um, and there's a lot of different ways to do it and to think about it. But what I would say is that like, there is a tendency, people tend to think like you turn the mics on and you record it and then you like mix it to make everything sound better and then it's done, you know? And that's not at least how I've ever made records at all. Um, so what are you doing representationally? Well, here's the problem like the first five album was recorded with like a little 
dictaphone cassette recorder from the 80s, I, I, I guess. With um, And that was an intentional decision to do it that way, right? No, well, it was an intentional decision to record um, all the rehearsals. And um, see, I'm like so nervous about recording. I'm like looking at that. Is it actually <laughs> recording right now? The, the DAW isn't like, it's not moving. I'm used to like the thing. I'm pretty... I'm pretty, uh, oh, I'm really new to digital. Um, oh yeah, great. Now I can see it moving. I'm used to seeing like the tape, you know, the, <laughs> the like the, the tape actually turning. Um, no, it was a decision to record the rehearsals. Um, and I thought it would be, I like making recordings on a Marantz cassette okay. thing. And I had a history of like, you know, recording this way. Um, and uh, it has a nice limiter on it, but that's like the only thing. So we would just set up like one $50 condenser mic and, um, and, and then, uh, and then do the Beatles trick of like having a dynamic mic, um, two dynamic mics taped together for, for Ma, um, the vocalist. And one of those is going into a mixer and mixing with the condenser mic because this is being recorded in mono because okay. uh, it doesn't even have stereo. Oh, it was mono. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm there with <laughs> headphones on like right now, um, kind of between takes changing the vocal level and the and the condenser mic level and like doing uh, the mixer I had was like a Behringer that only had bass okay. and treble EQ, not sweepable or anything. So, you know, you're. You're try there's like a lot of good performances that we did in rehearsals that like just the balance wasn't good uh, so we didn't use it and the only reason we released an album of stuff recorded that way was well first of all it sounded really cool and I liked it and it was like that was a representation that I couldn't really touch that much okay. you know you, if it's mono it's just a fucking recording of right. what of what happened it's still not neutral I think you know it's not neutral but it's a lot different from having like 10 mics on the drums and like all this shit hooked up everywhere. You can think of them, all the mics as being ears. And it's like, what would it be like if, if I told you how you're going to hear this show is going to be a combination of 20 different people standing in different places, hearing it in different ways. Right. You would be like, that doesn't make any sense to me. And so that's what mixing is. It's somebody making that make sense. when I was staying there and I was there because of like a technicality and a union contract I had with the National Lawyers Guild and I collided with like a street pole and I mean I like just whited out or whatever like oh I, but it was a good hit on the temple and I you know if you've ever read <laughs> I, I grew up like I read that book Holes mm -hmm. you remember that book there's I a do. kid who like gets hit <laughs> like by a baseball bat or something. And then he has like a brain hemorrhage and he dies. And, and I, that always, that lodged in my mind, like don't, if you get hit on the temple, you, you need to get checked out. But I don't know how hospitals work over there and everything. I was worried about the expense and all that. So my friend was like, Oh, I'll call my coworker. She trained as a nurse. And that was Ma, uh, the singer and really? co-writer of Fievel. So she came over the next day and we did, um, life after love, uh, by Cher 
that and was it, the that was the one yeah and she why, was why that so, song i don't know we were just like we were taught it was like well what songs do we know in common and i was like do you know this do you know that i don't remember what they were but she knew that one and i was like okay and then she we recorded on the Morant, so i have it um so your collaboration is just this total fluke yeah yeah what's the songwriting process i mean what's what's the breakdown in terms of the like who's doing what well um on God's Trash Men, it's really my writing, um, except for Decoy, which I guess is our most popular song. Which is it's in cool. the audio tree too. Yeah, and um, Ma wrote the lyrics to that. Um, but but a- after that, we we I was we were both kind of bored with the idea that I would be like, here's my writing, like pick songs or whatever. Um, so we started writing together in Brussels when I was living there, and. Um, the songwriting method is actually pretty much the exact same thing that I teach. So I, I, I teach, um, you could say music theory or composition or something. And I actually, I teach basically, um, a cumulative, you know, uh, lesson plan that kind of approaches the, the way that I write stuff with Ma. And you design this sort of method yourself. I started doing it by accident basically here's how the method works and yeah. and without getting technical about Not it sure. um sit there at the piano okay uh sometimes at the bass really rare and and i'm like all right ready and then sarah would be like Boo-da-do-da, or whatever mm-hmm. and then i would be like all right do-da-do-da, find a way to harmonize that and she would be like no i don't like that i'd be like oh, okay what about this? She'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. You know? (laughs) And so that, that was already like well in place when, um, when Ma and I started writing together, but it, it's really been through writing with Ma that it's like really developed and gotten more complicated than that. And mostly we have to fly across the world. And so we will have like 10 days Mm. we'll try to write a song a day. And, um, you know, it's, it's like high stakes where like, you know, which, affects the material but maybe that's a good thing in a way because you have these sort of constraints that are i don't know sometimes that can be yeah helpful to the creative process sure yeah constraints are good and 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 kismet is good like an intention is good everything's good it's a question of harmony and economy like how how much of this versus how much of that is always the thing and relativity you know and i assume you speak french pretty badly then how does that work with the songs that are in french in terms of like the lyrics (laughs) actually it works uh, i mean we we're both really really into idioms and stuff so um we'll have a melody set like a fragment and we'll be singing it like if i'm doing my fake french it'll be like whatever and she'll be like oh that sounds like this uh, you know, and I'm thinking about French grammar, and I'm like, but what if it was this? And she's like, you can't say that. And I'm like, but what about this? And she's like, oh, that's that's like this idiom. If you cry more, you'll piss less. Uh, and I'm like, what? All right, let's put that in. And it's the same <laughs> with English. Like, right. she'll kind of mumble words, and and I'll interpret them. And you know, it's teaching each other stuff too. It's like. Le Sortant pour faire entendre mes enclaves ainsi allongées. 
such a Steely Dan dilettante. I haven't listened to a full <laughs> record other than the Lost Gaucho, which I've I've listened to a lot um, in the in the last like five years. And by a lot, I mean like a few times. Okay. Um, and I've listened to the second arrangement a lot, and not just since th- this new amazing restoration came out, but there was a you know as you know there was an earlier restoration yeah. of that work tape and it was awesome. There have too. been hundreds of restorations. Yeah. People love that song <laughs> for good reason. I, and you know, I, I have a bunch of friends who used to, I would say the whole Blanche band that, um, from back in the day, um, that everybody was really, really into the Dan and I was kind of the outlier kind of like, I just didn't. Well, how come do you think? Um, well, I think I think it just I don't know. I I I I I love that music. I definitely listened to the Royal Scam a bunch um back then, but that was like 10 years ago. I just, you know, I'm like anybody else. I get hung up on on um certain things and I get obsessed with certain things. Like I got obsessed with the second arrangement for sure. <laughs> I I love that song. I mean, those guys are just so brilliant and um and I loved uh Donald's book. Uh Eminent hipsters. Yeah, with the tour the diary, tour diary. And all that. <laughs> that was very relatable material, even even given the huge difference in scale. Well, some people uh, took issue with it because they felt that he acted like a sort of, a sort of spoiled rich guy. Like here oh. was this guy who was given the spoils of like you know success uh, during the the heyday of the music industry, and he was just whining about it. But I <laughs> see, I read something like that, and I'm like. I feel better about my own place in the world because someone else feels this way about things too. So I don't know. To me, something like when I read something like that, it actually makes me feel better. Yeah. In general, like the (laughs) indignities of being a musician, um, especially a performing musician, you're working in showbiz, you know, and, and I, uh, I can understand somebody taking issue with it. Like being like, Oh, this guy's such a fucking asshole or whatever. Like, Oh, like, like all the prints hate, you know, like that. But it's like, you know, showbiz is about being objectified and treated like shit. And I I don't think that changes when you're on a bigger scale. It just it, it comes with more of a, a, you know, gratuitous, like obsequious smile on its face, treating you like hmm. a piece of shit and objectifying you. And yeah, it's, it's, it's great that he got rich from it. <laughs> like, from writing those crazy songs uh i i think it's great uh good for him yeah i have a question do you like the artists on that tour because i have a lot of regret about not seeing the dukes of september actually the tour he's writing about was boss skaggs oh boss skaggs and michael mcdonald oh yeah you see michael mcdonald is a total blind spot for me like i kind of know about him through the like he did some stuff with like Thundercat, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I heard that and it was really cool. But I haven't, I just haven't really gone down that rabbit hole. I've been down lots of other rabbit holes and there's lots of stuff that I, you know, I just don't know about. Like I, it's, and it's kind of weird and embarrassing to admit. Like I haven't really heard Joni's records. I haven't really heard Kate Bush's records. I haven't heard, um, Fievel gets compared to all this like rock and opposition and like, um, and like, what do they call it? That that British progressive Canterbury Canterbury Tales. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't really heard any of that other than the spent slap happy and um, this and uh, for the RIO like um, Axac 
Mabul. Uh, you know, I'm getting older and I'm not, I'm like less and less, um, all my tendencies to, you know, be an ideologue about whatever they're, they're, they're like waning and they're all eroding under my, under my feet. I just feel, and I'm, and I've taught more and more music, you know, and, and teaching is such a vehicle of just like abandoning judgment. Right. You know, you're just like, all right, well, let's dig into the material. Like, I'm a materialist, you know. And, you know, so I can be catty and have some, like, ta- hot takes on, like, whatever. <laughs> but I don't really feel it anymore. I don't really care. Um, but the, I think the big thing for me was, like, my my Steely Dan was Royal Trucks. Like, mm-hmm. when really? I, yeah, when I oh. heard Thank You and Sweet Sixteen by Royal Trucks... I think I think what those records did for me is analogous to what Steely Dan has done for a lot of people. Like I was like, this is really, really technical, really, really interesting, lyrically insane, progressive, transgressive, let's say, although I'm not fond of that whole mentality of transgressiveness. <laughs> um, and And just like really, you know, well produced but there's an element of like controlled chaos to it and um i think that would conflict maybe with some people's ideas of royal trucks but it's really those particular records like thank you and sweet 16 that are kind of like designed to be the big statement rock record like progressive rock records or something that's what they are to me anyway yeah i'm not super familiar with them i so you know um, I can't honestly. I haven't listened to them at all, to be honest. But um, it's interesting. So you kind of took because I, I mean, I've heard what they sound like, and it doesn't sound anything like the music you make. So you took certain things from that, maybe in terms of how that it seeps into your influence, and then I guess it's more. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I know musicians like great musicians. I know who like, um, especially songwriters and stuff, who 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 claim that they they listen to records and then they like they're like I want that kind of sound and yeah. I want this kind of structure or whatever <laughs> I a hundred percent every time I write it's like tabula rasa and with these bands and stuff I'm not telling people what to do um credit where credit's due like um some things I write for people okay and something sometimes I'll like be editorial about things but um in general, I might you know, I'll write it, ch- chart it as best I can. Usually, get taught by the musicians, like in the bands, how to chart things better, and you know, in a more understandable way. And then they, they people bring what they bring to it. And there, there's some editing and in the mixing, I have some control too. Um, but when a musician is doing something that you're not particularly, you know, it's not hitting you where you where you wanted to hit it do you interject or do you i mean or are all the musicians you have like 100 percent faith in what they're doing i mean i never have 100 percent faith in anything <laughs> like do, do you you know it, it well there's different possibilities yeah. one thing is like you let it ride and you're like well yeah. i don't really like what that person is doing right now but maybe i'll like it later mm-hmm. and sometimes that's true other times you can counteract it you know or or with your own playing or with uh, getting somebody else to touch it. You have to feel the emotional texture of the situation. And also I just have a huge amount of respect for musicians who practice more than I do. So 
I, I'm like I'm more resistant to like telling people what to do if I think that they shed all day. Um, but you must be deliberate in how you're choosing these people because you guys, again, I'm going back to this audio tree thing because that's the, for whatever reason, is the thing that I've been really engaged with of, of what you've done um, because you all seem to really be like locked in on the same page and maybe that's just from touring a lot together. But um, yeah, is, was, so are you deliberate in, in the people that you, I mean, how deliberate are you in terms of well, seeking, how, seeking out people to, to collaborate with? I mean, how deliberate are you about like choosing your friends? You know what I mean? Like yeah. probably not very deliberate <laughs> at all, right? Like things happen and yeah. sometimes, you know, you need, let, like, let's say you need a friend with a car, right? Um, like you have something specific, you need to go on a trip and you're like, you're, you're casting around for people and you find out that somebody who's a friend of a friend has a car. And you're like, hey, do you want to go on this trip? And they're like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Actually, that's convenient for me. Let's do that. And then you go on the trip, you get to know them, and you're like, oh, cool. Like, you know, now we have a rapport and all that. Um, It's kind of like that. It's like, except instead of a car, it's like a saxophone or something. Um, So you seem to invite circumstance into your world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not, yeah. I I don't, yeah, when, when, when we, you know, Earlier this year, our, our manager, who we started working with, um, Lucas, who's, who's becoming a really great friend of ours, um, he was just kind of like, you know, what are your dreams? Like, who do you want to play with? Like, who's on your radar? And what, you know, what's your, what are your ambitions? Like, what? let's come up with some really crazy goals and try to achieve them. And me and Ma were just like, uh, <laughs> um, we want to get, like, we want to, like, get people who have already been in the band like paid better and um oh yeah like these people like we know them and we haven't played with them yet and he was kind of like hey, that's not really what i meant like i meant like do you want to play with michael mcdonald <laughs> or whatever and we're like yeah yeah sure yeah hell yeah <laughs> you know it's kind of yeah. it's like that yeah uh but it, it, he, but i think i told you this one dream would certainly to be to like open a steely dan show especially <laughs> knowing that they like don't usually they don't have openers you know they uh, do sometimes i actually saw uh, elvis costello open for them wow yeah, sorry winston was there too yeah. damn yeah and they've also played with steve winwood and doobie brothers so sometimes there's no action <laughs> it's uh, funny because steely dan is kind of on the other end of the spectrum i mean they were i don't know how much of the lore you know but like during the uh, making of asia they were quite literally hiring and firing entire bands. Oh, wow. Like they would hire a band, have the band go through some rehearsals, and then they didn't like what they were doing, so they'd say, thank you for your time. They would get paid, but that was yeah. it. I don't know. I mean, it's it's just unimaginable to me. I, I, I was really influenced by my, my friend. Well, originally it was just a, you know, like a, a kind of like person I really admired as a musician and and you know a quote-unquote thinker <laughs> I hate it when people say that <laughs> but what else are you going to call somebody sometimes <laughs> yeah. um this guy Tori Kudo from from Japan has a band called Maher Shalal Hashbaz um that I was like a super fan of growing up there's this interview with him it's no longer online um where he was asked a question about Fred Frith right yep. who has this relationship to um 
you know, these, these European bands that Fievel gets compared to or whatever. And I, I, I like Fred Frith. Um, I like Skeleton Crew, this band with Tom Cora and those people. But, um, but yeah, he's asked a question, like, just what does he think about Fred Frith? Or, I think <laughs> it's Fred Frith. I might yeah. be wrong. And, and Tori's response is like, you shouldn't treat people like ingredients. Mm. Um, that's it. And, and so I, I don't, I, that really resonated with me and I've never, I, I would never be able to function like I think Fagan and Becker yeah. did where it's like that. Yeah. Um, which doesn't mean that I'm criticizing them at all. I think it's really interesting what they did. Um, and, and there's something, there's a double game about it that's really, really attractive and really interesting and part of, I think, why those records are so... What do you mean by double game? Like, um, they're both capable musicians, right? And they could have done a great deal more by themselves and they mm. could have just been like, all right, like, Purdy, you're in the band. <laughs> like, we want you whenever you're available um, and we want, you know... X person on base. They actually know. did try because they were going to tour with Asia. Yeah. But then they realized the musicians that they wanted were guys like, you know, Bernard Purdy and they couldn't afford to pay Purdy for a tour or like some of these other session musicians that played on it. So they just canceled the tour. There's actually a quote of Don. Wow. There's a quote of Donald where he said, the musicians are asking to be paid a lot more than we thought we could afford. And uh, we didn't want to be thought of as capitalists. So we just decided to scrap the entire thing. I don't huh. Know how much budget did they put? They had a huge budget for him, so they just put it all to the record. <laughs> they were at, yeah, there was like, because I, I read this book. I just found this out because I read there is, I've been reading all this Dealey Dan literature that's available as I, as I do this podcast, but I was reading in, uh, there was a recent Dealey Dan book called Nightfly by uh, Peter Jones. Um, and they had all these ideas for, for a tour for Asia and they actually booked dates. It was going to happen. Yeah. Um, which obviously would have greatly changed the trajectory of the band. Um, but when they figured in all the cost of the session guys that they wanted, they just said, no, we like, we can't do that. Like, we're just not going to do it. And they were going to huh. play like a 40 minute instrumental suite. And wow. Like they had all these lofty ideas about what an Asia tour would look like. And it never happened. And then they just ended up three years in the studio doing Gaucho. And that was that. So, wow. And that's the last record, right? Yeah. And well, Donald did the night fly. Right. But that's no alter. I saw something really surprising in an interview with him about it, or it's actually the press release, maybe. Um, well, he, Becker talks about how Fagan provided a lot of the harmonic direction and overall tonal framework, his ability to develop great chord sequences, striking modulations, and so on became an essential ingredient, blah, blah, blah. Um, so he basically Becker's like ascribing like the compositional technique of Steely Dan to like to Fagan, um, which, uh, you know, it, 
Yeah, he, but then he talks about not being bogged down in the harmonic complexities and ornaments that were perhaps irrelevant in the musical context of the day, which is like the doctor rhythm part. He's mm. like trying to like, he thinks like he's tapping into the zeitgeist, which is like hilarious because the record's <laughs> so bizarre. Um, but, you know, and the rest is just a bunch of, you know, fluff like the shit I was saying earlier. But then there's this other thing that he says in like another press release about it or it's Roger Nichols and he's saying um, Walter when he was asked by musicians what the chords to his songs were had to go to the MIDI sequence and look at the notes on the tracks to figure out what was going on nobody could agree what the correct names and chord functions of these bizarre clusters and voicings were <laughs> or even what key they were in or in some cases where one was which is the same as what key they're in um, you know, that just doesn't seem right. Um, makes it seem like maybe he, he didn't have a great deal of theory or something, which is cool. But surf and or die is really weird like that. Like yeah. I don't, I, that song is very, <laughs> very odd. And to yeah. me, that is like the, the absolute connection between Royal mm. Trucks and Steely Dan okay. surf and or die. <laughs> Combinations picked out from all the other possible ones, which, when given some time in the just right circumstances, not too far from the earth or too close to the sun, they will dance and they'll spin in the embrace of the trade winds, playing havoc with the hearts and the upturned faces down below. I love. Simpler, simpler recordings. Honestly, the simpler the better. So that 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 may be the answer to why, like, I I'm not like super called to check out these these Steely Dan studio records. They spent like years and years perfecting or whatever. Like, I I like I like quick work. Have you checked out any of the pre Steely Dan material, like the Fagan oh. and Becker demos? Yeah, I have heard some of that. Because that's really lo-fi and it's really cool too. Yeah, in that, way. that's interesting. Yeah. I don't feel. I remember feeling like I wasn't that attracted to the songs, <laughs> okay. like that. Like, but that's what I wanted to hear yeah. of the later stuff. There, that, but that reminds me that there's some really, really good Bacharach, Hal David stuff in that vein. That's like early and really weird. Like really. Just, Oh, I yeah. haven't listened to that. I love Bacharach, but where I knowledge that. ends, <laughs> check that. Okay, out. that is that's a good tip. Yeah. I was reading the lyrics along to listening to the record yeah. on the train here. And I was just like, might as well be in another language. Like, I don't even, you don't even pay attention a lot of the time to what people are saying. You just can tell that like you pick out certain things, right. like in the good old bad part of this college town, you know, right. and you're like, that's fucking great. <laughs> you know, that's always my kind of more, my relationship. Cause a lot of Steely Dan fans, they like to really unpack like the storytelling part of it. And I've never yeah been super attracted to that, but I do enjoy, you know, kind of lines or, or there's, there's a lot of lyrics on this that just sound fucking cool <laughs> yeah you know? they sound cool and and you can like if you're listening to music in a language that you don't understand um you can tell you can kind of tell when the lyrics are good yeah, still because yeah. it works that way in english because there, there's, there's these dimensions like the phonemic how the words sound how they're delivered 
and then like just the presence of certain words just have so, like such a lodestone power. But yeah, I, I found this in this interview. Um, Becker says, uh, the situation hasn't changed much in 20 years. It's the dichotomy that you mentioned a moment ago. The quote-unquote anarchists or people who are interested in more interesting lyrics are generally speaking not interested in jazz harmonies. They want something more raw and what they perceive to be subversive sounding, which usually means clanging guitars, <laughs> which I think is really true um, still. And then Fagan says, I think people who are sophisticated in the sense that they want to hear some substance in the lyrics are musically going to tend to be primitivists. And Becker says, or some sort of socialists. <laughs> Fagan, I mean, this is like, you know, Red red Scare era. <laughs> Different Red Scare This has era. been screenshotted and shared on Twitter. Really? This, yeah. The socialist thing? This, the, yeah. Like we're, we're so, uh, there was a thing where they were going to do a socialist opera. Oh. Yeah. Or is they, they were joking. It obviously was never going to happen, but they like p- proposed. I mean, yeah, they're socialists, right? We're all socialists. <laughs> there's no. I I would hope that there's no controversy there at this point, and like we're you know, enough is enough. Uh, <laughs> at one point, Walter in uh, the song "Girlfriend," mm. there he throws in the line, "And all at once am privy to the entire grim design of a great civilization." in the terminal stages of a slow but steady mental, moral, spiritual <laughs> decline. Yes. And so it so goes, bad. and thus it is written, and all I want to know is, where does a guy like me fit in? Oh, my God. <laughs> See, he always lands on shit lines like that. So. Virtual raincoats are coming back. Hats, as always, continued flat. Yeah, I actually think hat too flat is, like, if someone asked me what is the weirdest song in the entire Steely Dan universe, like including all the Steely Dan albums and, and Donald and Walter solo, I would, I would go with hat too flat. Cause it's, it has like, it's discordant and weird. And it's about an alien who is trying to fit in with humans. Oh yeah. That's what it is. Cause yeah. it sounds like it's about writing. He's like back at home. The machines work hard. We, we folk like to take it easy, honing our awareness of the finer things of life. Here, when I go down to my job, I work hard for what seems like a long time. I look at my watch. 15 minutes. It felt like half a day. <laughs> yeah, the alien comes to Earth and realizes how shitty it is here and only pines for being back on his planet. But he's kind of making the best of the situation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, all the lyrics on the album, like pretty much every song has a dimension of being like, there's definitely some stuff about aging, about like kind of abdicating some kind of primal youthful anger and need to stake a claim in the world that's relatable and then there's cryptic stuff about writing cryptic stuff about sex (laughs) the kind of lost relationship to drugs and all this stuff it's very like uh it's full it's like replete like there's like and and it and it and also these like kind of prophetic societal statements and stuff it's fucking great it's like it's got it all like and it's dumb too which i love I yeah. got into it because, and this is maybe because I, I find it interesting, but like I got into it because when Walter died, they would cover Book of Liars on um, that tour, which I just think is interesting. That's a weird one. Yeah. It's like not one of the better ones in my. That's my. That's your fave. <laughs> I just got obsessed with that song for some reason, and I would only actually it was like only listening to that song, and then I got into the. I take it back. That's that's probably one of my 
four or five favorites. <laughs> it's just like a nice circular, simple feel, and the the, the lyric, the main lyrics are good. Whoa. And yeah, then it has like you know weird. It's always, it's always like weird verses, and then they land on some. He lands on some great little pithy phrase, which I find I find in like an inspiring way of structuring lyrics. Super pith. They actually. Um, I only found this out through, you know, taking this deeper dive into Steely Dan, but, um, and I, cause I hadn't realized that Steely Dan actually played a lot of Walter's songs when they were touring as Steely Dan. Like they would bring these songs to the Steely Dan band and play them live. And they, some of them sound amazing. Like I was, um, cause I did an episode on an entire show. Like we just listened to a Steely Dan show and like talked about it and one, like down at the bottom they do. Oh wow! And it's incredible. Like it that sounds song is like so good. Yeah, it sounds so full and like almost anthemic. Yeah, which you wouldn't guess from the from the recording, but it's like, I don't know. I think Walter is. I f- I feel like after hearing that, it's just like you see how Walter really was. So like I, I don't know. I feel like Walter always is a little bit in the shadow of Donald in terms of like people talking about who was more creatively responsible for. Sure. The music that they made, and I don't know, I disagree with that. Well, you know, like, shit, I'm a keyboard player, you know, I grew up playing keyboard. Who do I think is cool? Certainly not keyboard players. (laughs) Guitar, I like guitarists. Yeah. I like wind players. I like pretty much everybody, everybody but keyboardists. And, um, to, you know, some of the, some of that Fagan stuff, like that, I never, I never really, I never found, got my hooks into the Nightfly. Um, it sounds like it, it sounds like the keyboardist made it and that's my own criticism of a lot of the shit i've made is like, I'm like <laughs> that sounds like a keyboardist made it mm. it's kind of embarrassing what does that mean to you too much chord concept too much um awareness of how things compute you know i always think about the like ornette coleman orientation toward the piano as kind of like a kind of like enemy um you know which is that's a simplified version of this relationship to the piano but like this idea that it uh and I, I usually talk to students about this I'm like this is kind of like a computer that flatlined everything and it says that you know uh whatever octave you're in everything has the same meaning um this became like the pedagogical, like the lingua franca of like of Western tonal music, like this instrument. And now, of course, like it, it literally is a computer. Like most people's keyboards are computers now. Um, you know, that is what it is. There's a lot of great stuff that comes along with that. I'm not knocking it. It's amazing. Yeah. I'm not a primitivist. I love the piano. Like it's my it's my instrument Mm -hmm. but there is a dimension of like the guitar is set up in such a way that people can can work more readily with things like shapes and um basically with their own unconscious uh and like gestural movements without kind of like look i'm a huge proponent of theory like i you know it's changed my fucking life like that's um, what you do you teach it yeah, and I and I and I'm very interested in it, like super, super interested in it. But the 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 the, the what's at stake is like 
can you stay on the edge of what you know how to do? And guitarists are always right there, or not always. They can be cursed by the same thing as the keyboardist. I mean, do you think the guitarists are more liberated because they're not tied to what you know, like the maybe some limitations on the scales or something? Do I intellectually think that? No, I think that everybody's kind of who's playing equal tempered instruments is more or less dealing with the same shit. But do I emotionally feel that way? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. I will always feel that way. I'll always think guitar players are super sexy, exciting, interesting, arcane. What about a violin player though? Cause totally. You're... Okay. Totally interesting. <laughs> yeah. Cello. Uh, cello. Uh, I, <laughs> I must admit is, 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 is a harder sell for me. Um, just the timbre of a cello. Uh, but I I know some great cello players and I really like. I'm Tom afraid Cora. to say viola because that was my instrument. Oh, I, I played yeah, I classical. Re- I mean, honestly, I don't <laughs> even know if I can distinguish a viola from. <laughs> Nobody can. Nobody cares about the viola. That's what's great about it. Violin, as you can kind of hide a little bit. Uh, that's what I appreciated about it is that if I fucked up, no one would notice because we kind of just blend in with everything else. But, oh, because it would be like a huge string ensemble. Yeah, I always played with orchestras. I never played in. Wow. Yeah. I can't even imagine. It sounds yeah. so cool. There's just so many things <laughs> to do. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, in a perfect world, yeah. I think I, I, we would all be able to live infinite lives and get to check out all these different ways to do <laughs> things. Cause I, you know, I, I've gone down a particular road totally by some, there's some intention in it, but mostly just because like, it's like, Oh, that, I kind of know how to do that. Oh, that seems attractive. Oh, I want to learn that a little bit, you know? And, but like, it's a total accident. I I would love to build electronic instruments or, or be, you know, or like shed all day on like flute, you know? Yeah. There's just certain things where it's like, well, you know, it's not enough time. But you're still happy with what you're doing though, right? At the end of the day, this is, it's, yeah. This is the thing you most want to be doing. <laughs> Being on this podcast. <laughs> be, I, you know, you, I think that the, when I say heuristic, like, you know, it's like supposed to be a learning device. So I think the best case scenario for any of us is whatever you're doing. Hopefully it's helping you in, uh, would bracket the word enjoy, but find something useful and exciting about all kinds of experiential possibilities. So I, I, I would say that if your, your, your music as a listener and as a player should be opening you to more sounds and to an experience of sound that is like, it ha- fuck happiness. Like, forget about that. It, we can leave that far behind. That's very circumscribed. That's like a mood, right? Yeah. Um, something more useful than happiness seems available to those who learn from experience, right? Like, which, which means that like you, it can be summoned up during other kinds of moods and it can be used to change moods and stuff. This is what's at stake is can (laughs) we like, this is at the vanguard of experience, you know, like this is why, and it can't, and it, and it can't be like a self-help module. It it has to literally be to come from life, from one's own life. Like there's, you can't teach this. You I would force never, these things to happen. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not down for the seminar on it. 
Right. Uh, but I think we all find it in different ways. And it's like really, that's where all the action is, really. And, you know, maybe people are finding it in podcasts or whatever. Like, <laughs> I, I, I feel like podcasts are like this huge repository of like opinionation usually. Mm. Like it's like, and I can't imagine like an audience that, what 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 are people looking for in all this opinionation? Like right. I, I've tuned into some of these like you know these infamous <laughs> podcasts for a second and yeah. just been like been like this is this is supposed to summon up some kind of like frisson like I'm supposed to be like scandalized or like joining with some kind of like malevolent energy like in ghostbusters 2 like that, <laughs> that bad vibe under the city that vigo is the subway like, river thing right yeah yeah i you know i don't know we just li- we live in such a weird world and and uh, all i know is this people who get really materialistic um in a good way <laughs> working on whatever the fuck it is um are in a position to learn something that can't be can't be communicated through like um discourse and opinionation and all this stuff and that is where i see becker and fagan accidentally inverting the usual list um that's where i see them like being really relatable is like as materialist uh, not as perfectionists who are like who made like brilliant work or whatever but as like writers who are like digging into the fucking material and mm. like sitting there doing the work and as becker said about 11 tracks of whack like trying to make something out of nothing and take it all the way from nothing into a form that then the then the question is just how to represent that form and that's where we diverge <laughs> that's where i don't relate to them at all Right. Uh, maybe they were in the studio that long, not because they were perfecting it, but because they're actually like destroying something that they can't, they, they, they can't handle the vulnerability of something that's mm. like, you know, that's written all over that music's face. And they, they, they like, they're just painstakingly erasing their own tracks. Well, or, they decided not to go back to the second arrangement, even though they could have easily re-recorded it. Yeah. And that's something attractive about them that they, that, that tells me that they recognize that sometimes special things happen that can't be replicated, mm. which is not what a perfectionist thinks, right? Um, Since this second arrangement came out, actually a few people have been upset about it because they think that it should have been left alone. <laughs> like we shouldn't be pretending that this song was supposed to be on Gaucho or like is anything close to what would have actually been on the album because it wasn't completed. Right, like it's not rev- like that's revisionism. It's revisionism, yeah. I mean, everybody needs to just make a record and like quiet down or whatever. Like <laughs> it's like it, it's not that holy what it what ends up being on a record. Like there, it, it, but it ends up being that way for some people. Well, if you think about like the majority of records that are coming through this major label pipeline that people actually know about, there is so much outside of like the quote unquote artists intentionality that's part of maybe Steely Dan, especially as they became super famous had like great contractual clauses about having complete artistic control. Like such right. things happen. Fievel has that right now. Like nobody's going to tell us, so you, you can't put that song on your album or whatever. Um, but like, 
you know, most of the time there's a huge amount of influence from other people. And so I say all the anti-revisionists are just as guilty of revisionism. And I think that I don't give a fuck what's on Gaucho. (laughs) I I think it's significant that 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 song came about at a particular time that it's like the Gaucho crop or whatever. That seems important, but at the end of the day, it's just a great song, great, great recording, great arrangement. Uh, and it's cool that it reached us as this kind of like artifact that like isn't as hi-fi as like the usual Dan thing, but it's like, it's like, it's like we've been hearing progressively like better (laughs) rips of it for like, you know, I don't know, 20 years or something. One thing I found fascinating is that literally within hours after the release, people were already starting to patch together the different versions. Like they were taking, because there were lines missing even from this new hi-fi version. Oh, wow. So literally, like, I saw one response was like, this is cool. Like, this is better than what we've had to work with from before. Mm-hmm. Like, they didn't even see it as this is the, like, finally we have the version. It was like, mm-hmm. this was just another piece in this, like, ongoing um I don't know. Like I've, I've kind of referred to it as like kind of this collaborative art project because that's what it is. Yeah. It's like everyone and it's kind of happening in this virtual space because like people will do like this, you know, they'll add this thing to it and then they'll send it to their friends. And then I said, I took the horns from this cover band. Like there was this cover band. That, <laughs> oh, shit. Because there's a lot of really cool. there's a lot of cover band versions, too. Yeah. So it's like they're mixing together like the cover versions with like the different demos. So it's like Donald's vocals and then like the horns from this Anthony Robostelli uh, recording, so yeah, this is it's where the the, the Danisance that you have tapped into kind of starts to intersect with the dead thing or something. A little bit, yeah. Because it totally because like the fandom takes on a life of its own outside between of like revering the LP is like which you're like fuck that who cares like the LP is like the post 1960s whatever like totem of like this is the final thing and this is sacred and like they, in a way. That they're all about that. They're like the ultimate example of that to the, like whatever Asia's budget was crazy. And then they spent it all on that. So they couldn't tour like that whole thing. But then there's the whole lore of like all the stuff that was deleted, all the solos by like, the greatest jazz and post pop jazz musicians ever that like, and they the just, del- they just deleted all that. Like it. And so it's ripe for like, but yeah, like this sort of sanctity. It's like, the, it's a weird tension of like, yeah, these, people who believe and totemize different aspects of it. Like, you know, I mean, what a wicked, we're not supposed to hear it because it's not on the record. Like it's such a, it's such a weird, I don't know. You know what I mean? What a wicked game. Like to just be like getting like people like in over and over and they're just like cutting solos and then you just delete it and stuff. But uh, you know, about that fan project thing and all that, like yeah. I, the, the analogy that came to me is like, like the Bible or like the, uh, or like the Supreme court or something like this idea of like originalism, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that, that there would be like a way to be faithful to the original intention of like the founding fathers (laughs) or to the, the, the motley crew that, that, that wrote what became the, you know, the new Testament after like a million re edits and all this stuff. And there's all these people who want to fix things and essentialize things and then because their whole relationship to the thing 
is based on the idea of its fixity. And that is like maybe the unhealthy part of fetishism that like we, we can all relate to like, you know, and then we all know the joys of like the fun parts of fetishism (laughs) that maybe like have to do with the abrogation of that fixity and like the confusion and like with the object and all that. And that, that's like, I think if you're a writer, like you got to join with that ultimately. And so it's cool that people are like doing these piecemeal, weird ass gestures of like fanhood by like being like, but what if it was like this, you know, that's so cool and hypothetical and writerly like that's joining with like the ethos of those guys almost as much as it would be joining with the ethos to just write your own fucking stuff. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>